Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. We're going to be reading Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, and then we will go to the Lord together in prayer. So if you are there, please turn to verse, or look at verse 1. Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You bow your heads with me. Jesus, we do come now and we ask your blessing on our time. I pray that uh, your word will convict us and challenge us this morning, both in how we think, but then how we live together and act together as families, as married couples, as as parents with children, as friends, as community groups, as a church. Lord, we today, this is very practical for us, and so I pray that we will listen, be encouraged to go out then and live in light of these truths. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, good morning. How's everyone doing today? We doing all right? Making it? A little bit at a time. You know, it's been an interesting week, has it not? Uh, having had a week now to kind of experience uh, all everything and just sort of process even a little bit, um, I can say that I am, uh, the same thing I said on Sunday night, I'm just very thankful, very thankful for the grace and the love that's been poured out in this church. You know, sometimes, you know, change is hard, right? And we don't like it. Uh, so sometimes you go through change and it reveals things about you. Sometimes things you don't necessarily like. But I'm encouraged by the fact that I saw exactly what I thought I would see from, from our church, and that was a great deal of maturity and love. And, you know, those are, those are fruits of the Spirit. Don't ever really pat ourselves on the back, any of us, and think, you know, we're such a great church or whatever. You know, if God ever does anything good here, it was always because He was the one doing it. And so we've gotten to see a little expression of that here, even in the past week. So I hope that encourages you. Thank you. I will say, though, that despite any changes coming in the months ahead, one thing that will never change is our commitment to Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. That is not going to change one bit uh, at all. And that was one of the things, funny enough, I really hated about last Sunday when that was I didn't really get to go through the Scriptures very much. You know, I read Ecclesiastes 3 and made a couple of comments from it, but, you know, that's not a good, healthy diet for the church. But last Sunday was a little unique, so I think it's okay. We were fine going through it. Uh, but definitely want to come back now and be in the text. And I laughed last Sunday. One of the very first questions that was asked to me after the morning service, someone, I don't even remember who now it was that came up to me. They came up and said, do you think we'll be able to finish Galatians before you leave? <laughs> and on the one hand, I was like, wait, 
What do you mean we'll be able to finish? Of course we're going to finish Galatians. We've got like one chapter, like four you know, months to go. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Given my breakneck speed in the past, I actually kind of understood the question a little better and I laughed at it. And we are going to finish Galatians. Let me assure you that. In fact, I'm even hoping to have some time to cover a few other topics uh, between now and May. But we definitely, definitely want to keep our focus on the scriptures and not ourselves going forward. Now, a few moments ago, I read to you the beginning of Galatians 6, and if you still have your Bibles open, I just would ask you to look quickly through Galatians 6 just to get a sense of kind of the outline that's ahead here. You'll notice just with even like five seconds of looking that in the first 10 verses, Paul addresses the Galatians with just a number of admonitions, thoughts, some challenges that he has for them, which we'll talk about more in a moment. And then beginning in verse 11, you see him start to wrap up the letter. That's kind of the, the turn to the end here as he concludes this letter, brings it to a conclusion for these people. So that's kind of the breakdown, some final applications, some concluding thoughts. You kind of have a sense now of the outline. Uh, we're going to take a moment also here at the beginning just to remind ourselves of where we left off back in December when we finished up Galatians chapter 5 because we want to be able to pick up there this morning. And I would start by just reminding us of the big picture context. I won't do it in detail, but there's false teachers that came to Galatia. They attacked Paul. They attacked his gospel. Uh, they came and said that, you know, you, salvation by faith alone and Christ alone is not enough. In order to truly be saved, you have to have faith in Christ. You also have to keep the Old Testament law. And that was true for both salvation and for sanctification uh, together. And so after taking a little bit of time to defend himself, uh, Paul presented a biblical, historical, theological defense of the gospel of grace alone through faith alone. And the key word that he ended with in that argument was the word freedom. Remember this? We are free from the law. We are free to follow Christ. We are free from all of the bondage and the obligation to live our lives by the constraints of that Old Testament law, either to be accepted by God or to live acceptably before him. But of course, as we saw in the letter, not everyone in the Galatian church could process that correctly. And so some people were taking that freedom that they had in Christ and were going out and using it in ways that were just directly sinful. And, and that kind of became a pivot point in the letter, if you think about it. The, the pivot point was chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, where he says, For you were called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we do have freedom, but we cannot use that freedom in any way, shape, or form as an excuse for sin. Uh, freedom should not lead to, and here's your Scrabble word of the day, licentiousness, okay? It should lead to love. See what I did there? That was great. It was elves. Uh, and if we love one another, you know, we would, in fact, fulfill the whole law. Well, Paul then, uh, that sort of leads him into talking about, well, how do you do that exactly? What does that look like in the believer's life? And that's where we started going into the walk by the Spirit passage. And we spent many weeks just thinking through that concept of what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, we know this much. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And we looked at what life in the flesh looks like versus what life in the Spirit looks like. And as he ended chapter 5, these were the final two verses. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. Okay, so that's where we've been. That was the entire sermon series in like five minutes, right? Entire sermon series into chapter five. Does everyone remember where we were at? Uh, as we turn now to chapter six, 
it feels to some people as if just sort of out of the blue, kind of randomly now, Paul, without warning, begins picking and choosing a few topics that he wants to address with the Galatian believers that may or may not fit with everything else that he said in the letter. At least that is how some people feel about it. They look, particularly at verses 1 through 10 here, these, and they just question, how do these admonitions that are kind of all over the board fit into this overall argument of the letter that I just presented to you in a little five-minute summary? And while there's a part of me that kind of understands when you read their, their questions, he understands why they're a little bit confused, and yet I would say to you that if you can keep the full context of Galatians in view, kind of like I just did for you in that little summary, if you can keep the whole picture in view, you won't really be confused about what he's doing here or why, because I think all of this fits very well. These things are not random. They are not unconnected, because quite frankly, that's just not Paul's approach. You, no one would accuse Paul of being... Um, or having a lack of purpose in his writing. In fact, if you remember, back in chapter 5, when we were looking at the list of the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, remember I told you that there was something inside me, kind of like given all the clues in the text, that assumes that those lists weren't random either. That Paul actually had a real purpose in picking the various sins that he picked or the various fruits of the Spirit that he chose. Paul's not a random guy. He's very purposeful, very calculating in a good way with his words. And so for me, when I come now to chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, my presupposition is that Paul has a very specific purpose and reason for listing out the things he does here. And so we're going to approach it as such. Now, the first issue that Paul addresses here coming out of this plea in chapter 5 for them to walk by the Spirit and to walk by love, the very first admonition he gives them is to bear one another's burdens. And he begins this in a somewhat surprising manner, I think, by talking about how we help those who are struggling with sin. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I want you to notice right off the bat that this is presented in an if-then kind of statement. If this first thing is true, then... This other thing should be true. And that's actually very important here because it shows you where the focus of Paul's admonition really lies here in the text. The focus is not on the person caught in sin. The focus is on the person whose responsibility it becomes to try to restore that individual. That's the focus. That's where he's kind of pointing us to. The person sinning is kind of like the situational setup. It's kind of like the context. If you're in this context, then here's what you need to do. The command of verse 1 is focused on the restorer. Everything in verses 2 through 5 is focused on the restorer. So this is very important. What Paul seems to be wanting to do here is to help the Galatian believers understand how they are supposed to respond to their sinning brothers, which, again, remember the context of Galatians, it seems like there are a number of believers in this church who have taken their freedom and misused it. They've gone out and used that freedom, the real freedom, genuine freedom they had in Jesus, and used it as an excuse for sin. And Paul now seems to be addressing, hey, how are you going to deal with that going forward? Now that you know it's wrong, he's addressed that it's wrong, what are you going to do with that going forward? Well, he does this in four different parts. First, he tells them who should do this. And the answer to that is those who are spiritual. Now, that is a great translation of the Greek term that's being used here. 
But I would say that in our modern American context, that actually could be a little bit confusing. And so I want to just clarify it a bit. Because if I were to tell you, hey, I mean, I know this guy, he's a really spiritual guy. There's a lot of different ways you could potentially take that. For some people, when they hear the word spiritual used in that kind of a sentence, they'll think, well, that's just a synonym for religious. He's just a religious guy. It may not even be Christianity, right? He might be some like new age whatever, and, you know, so he's a really spiritual person. He's in touch with the spirit. And, you know, they use it just very broadly as a synonym for religion. Other people use the word spiritual to just mean devout, committed, or disciplined. So when I say he's a really spiritual guy, you might picture a guy who gets up uh, every day for 30 years, never misses a day, reads his Bible religiously, no pun intended, okay? Or he gets up every morning at 4 a.m. and he prays for an hour for his great aunt's toe because it's got an infection or something like that. This guy is really spiritual. I mean, he's just and it has to do more with his discipline, his devotion, etc. Others hear the word spiritual and they think of it as a way to distinguish between sacred things versus secular things. So coming to church this morning was very spiritual. It was your spiritual activity this week versus going to your kid's soccer game yesterday. That wasn't spiritual at all. That was just something you did for fun. These are some common ways our culture in general, but even people within the church, use the word spiritual. But Paul means none of those things here. None of them. To understand what Paul means here, you simply need to remember the teaching that he gave them just a few verses prior. I mean, think back to chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5. What was he talking about for half of a chapter? He's talking about walking in the Spirit. We spent weeks looking at that, about living your life under the Spirit, about saying no to the flesh and letting the Spirit control your actions day in, day out, all day long. The people who do that, those are the spiritual people, according to Paul's definition of this word. It really is that simple. So there you go. People who are walking in the Spirit, whose lives are being led by the Spirit, uh, people keeping in step with the Spirit, all of those terms are the people who should be helping those struggling with sin. Second, he tells them what the goal is. And the goal, as you see behind me here, is restoration. They should restore that person. Um, now, I want to park here for just a moment because in my own experience and kind of looking around at churches and being in churches and watching various groups, I, I have seen a lot of believers who are very confused about this idea, probably because the churches they grew up in and or the families they grew up in were confused about this idea. In a lot of churches and a lot of Christian homes, the response to someone struggling with sin was shame and punishment. And some of you have experienced that. You know exactly what I'm talking about when I refer to that. Someone comes forward and they're like, I'm struggling with the sin, and instead of like a rush to help the person, it's like a rush to crucify them. Shame them publicly, shame them privately, punish them in any way, drop the hammer on them as fast and as hard as you can, because that is the right response to sin. Of course, everyone knows that. Well, you know, I'm only, I'm only 39 years old. Um, you know, I haven't seen everything. I haven't been everywhere. I haven't talked to everyone. And I might change my view of what I'm about, what I'm about to say here as I age and see more, though I kind of don't think that I, I will. But I have never seen shame and punishment be an effective approach or response to sin. Never. Can't say that it never has been, but I just have never seen it. Um, my experience in watching those kinds of situations is that it causes people to become afraid. It causes people to hide. It does not change their lives. You know, you can change someone's outward actions, perhaps, by shame and punishment, 
But you're never going to get to the heart, not with those two things. And I think that there's many Christians, perhaps some of you in this room even, who would do well to think long and hard about Paul's stated goal here. The goal in that situation is not to punish the person. The goal is to restore them, to bring them out of their sin, to put them back into a path where they are walking in the Spirit, to restore them to a truly spiritual life. The word restore here simply means to mend or strengthen. So the picture is of something that's torn that needs to be put back together, or something that's become weak that needs to be strengthened and made strong again. And, you know, we get this in every other scenario of life, it seems like. If you're driving home today and your car gets a flat tire, you don't call the tow truck for it to be taken to the junkyard. You, you get a new tire. You restore it. Or if your kid comes to you and says, Mom, I have a strep, they have strep throat. You know, the kid knows they have strep throat. But if they didn't know they had strep throat, you're like, well, I've got to call the funeral home and plan the service. You know, we don't. You call the doctor and you get medicine. You restore your child, right? It's, you don't just throw them away and yet, in how many churches and how many families and how many situations does someone come forward and say, I'm struggling with the sin and the people were just thrown right out? Pariahs now. Abandoned, rejected. Because they were because they were struggling? Is it just me or does that seem wrong? I, I, I would say it's a sin. The goal is not punishment. The goal is restoration. So please, please, please do not forget that. We'll talk more about it in a few minutes. Third, he tells them how they should approach it, and that is in a spirit of gentleness. And that word should make sense to you. Now, that idea should make sense to you now that you recognize that the goal in that moment is restoration, not punishment, right? Uh, it's no accident, by the way, that he uses the phrase here, spirit of gentleness. If you look back up to chapter 5, verse 23, you'll see that one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. It's the same exact word that he used in chapter 5, verse 23, that he's using now. He is directly and specifically applying that fruit of the Spirit to this particular situation. In order to pursue that restoration process, this is the specific fruit of the Spirit that you are going to need. And in case you've forgotten, the word uh, gentleness here simply means mildness, uh, humility, meekness. If it had a polar opposite, it would be harshness, like anger, wrath, those kinds of ideas. It would be on the other end of the spectrum. And this goes back a little bit to the, to the last point in a way, because again, this isn't the way that a lot of believers have experienced, you know, restoration at the hands of, of a church or fellow believers. And again, some of you may have been the recipients of that before. Or you come forward and you tell her, I'm struggling with this, and all you get is, ah, you know, whoa. Like, <laughs> that wasn't what I was thinking I'd, I'd get at all. I was hoping to be loved and helped through those kinds of things, you know. Here we're told to be gentle. We're, that should be our demeanor in responding to sin. Now, just for the record, though, let me add this. Gentleness does not mean weakness, avoidance, uh, not being non-confrontational or accepting of sin in any way. Okay, hear that? It does not mean any of those things. In fact, I would say that if you are going to pursue this kind of relationship with other believers where you're going to be able to say these kinds of things to them, you need to be able to develop the ability to say very hard things to others in a gentle spirit. You can, you can say hard things well. You can tell people that they're wrong, they're sinning, <laughs> that they're making terrible mistakes in life in a spirit of gentleness, or you can do it in a spirit of harshness. You're right either way. The truth is the truth in those moments. 
But how you deliver that message can, can make a big difference. You have to speak truth, though, in every situation, even if the truth hurts. And it's kind of like that analogy that I read somewhere not too long ago and I've shared now several times. You're probably tired of hearing it. It's the difference between the, the criminal approaching you with the knife and the surgeon approaching you with the knife. They both want to hurt you. <laughs> They're both going to cut you. One, though, is doing it to hurt you or harm you. The other one's doing it to help you. One's doing it harshly. One's doing it gently. One's your enemy. One's your friend. Never, never forget that. Either when you're approached or when you approached others, never forget that. It's with that same kind of loving gentleness that we are to approach this restoration process. And then finally, don't get excited about that because we still have a ways to go. Finally, he gives them a warning. And the funny thing, this is why we still have a way to go, is that uh, it actually encompasses not only the rest of verse 1, but all of verses 2 through 5 as well. This whole last section is kind of covered by this warning. And the warning is, keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. And my guess would be that as you read that or you hear me say that out loud, you probably think that what Paul is saying is, hey, if you're in that scenario and you're dealing with someone who's struggling with sin, you better keep a watch on yourself, lest you be tempted by the same thing they're struggling with. So, for example, if it's someone who's dealing with sexual sin, hey, you know, keep watching yourself lest you also be tempted with sexual sin. Or if it's like an alcohol-related thing, you know, hey, keep watching yourself lest you also be tempted by an alcohol-related sin of some sort, that kind of thing. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here at all. Like, not even close. Um, I could be wrong, and I definitely think that there is a place for those kinds of warnings as we interact with situations, but I do not think that that is Paul's warning for us here, I want you just for a moment, again, you got three seconds to do it. I want you to scan through verses two through five, and I want you to see if you can get a sense as you look down at your text, what Paul might actually be worried about here. You've got three seconds. One, two, three. All right, now I'm going to help you out a little bit. Got it? Here we go. Notice that there are some similarities between verses two and five. Okay, look at verse 2, look at verse 5, notice there's some similarities. They're not behind me. Now, look at verses 3 and 4, and notice that there, there are also some similarities in terms of the content or what he's talking about topic-wise, generally speaking. This is not accidental. This is actually a very common rhetorical device that was used in the ancient Roman and Greek world. It's referred to as a chiasm. A chiasm is named after the Greek letter chi, which in English looks like a big X, okay? And in a chiasm, what you have is an author or a speaker presenting a, an argument by laying out their various points kind of in a like a descending order kind of like this. You've got like a main argument, which leads to a next argument, etc. Then when they finally reach the main point they're trying to make, they do all the same arguments, perhaps in some slightly different ways, in reverse order. So what you end up with is an argument that looks something like this, okay? First argument, second argument, second argument, first argument. It comes, you see the X? You got it? Okay, that's kind of dorky, but now you know. The point of doing it this way is that by the time the author has gotten to that center point, that is the thing they're focused on. That's the issue that they're really wanting to draw your attention to in that format, that chiasm, was a very common way of doing that in the ancient world. You see this throughout the New Testament. Uh, some of them are very big and complex. Others are pretty small and simple. The one here in Galatians 6 is very small and simple. He begins by saying that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But he turns in very quickly to the idea of pride. Uh, he goes, hey, if anyone thinks there's something when they're nothing, 
they're deceiving themselves, right? And that's kind of a big deal. You're, that's pride, right? Then in verse 4, he brings up the idea of pride again, this time in a different way. He says, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, before finishing talking about burdens again. And ESV uses the word load, but some of your translations might use the word burden a second time. Can you see the chiasm there? Burden, pride, pride, burden. That's kind of the order. Which means then that what he's trying to draw our attention to here is the danger of pride. And as I tie that back into then the warning that he gave us in verse 1 about watching ourselves lest we also be tempted, I think that Paul here has two related but different pride-connected concerns in view as he speaks to them in the scenario first, based on verse 3. I think he's concerned that some of them might become proud and begin to really think that there's something because they're the ones helping someone struggling with sin. Oh, look at me. You know, I, I'm the guy that the, you know, the church asked to help this person over here. He, I'm the one he came to. Out of all the people he knew, I'm the one he came to. I must be really, I must be something to be helping him in this situation. You know, good for me. Um, yeah, that's one danger. <laughs> that's pride, is it not? The second danger is mentioned then in verse 4, and that is that you begin to boast because you somehow view yourself as being better than your neighbor. Well, I mean, he's struggling with this or she's struggling with that. I'm not. Whew. I must be better. And you, you begin to rank yourself. You begin to rank yourself based on the scenarios that you're seeing and the people you're working with around you. Again, that is another danger in this process. So I think that the, that the temptation Paul is concerned with here in verse 1 is the temptation of pride, either that you will begin to think you're really something because you're helping someone out, or that you begin to think you're better than them because maybe you don't struggle in the same exact way that they do. And so to help fight those temptations, Paul makes two statements about burdens, one specific to each concern. Back in verse 2 now, he commands the person who's restoring the sinning brother to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And here you have the idea of sharing a burden. And if it helps, the word burden here, because the two words are different, the word burden here refers to some like overwhelming situation of life, something really big. I mean, really big. I was trying to think of like an illustration to help us process that. And the only thing I can come up with is like an Amish barn raising. I'm not Amish, but I've seen them on TV. Okay. I've watched them happen before on television. You know, and when the, the Amish farmer is getting ready to raise a barn, he can't do that on his own. So he's calling everybody, right? The whole Amish tank. How do they call? Anyway, they call everyone in town and they, they all show up on the same day and they all together raise the barn, right? They're bearing one another's burdens in that kind of manner. They can't do it on their own. They're all doing it together. Maybe it's not the best analogy, but I don't think it's a bad one when it comes to our fight against sin. You know, if you're a believer, sin better be a burden to you. You better hate it. If you don't hate your sin, then you probably have bigger problems, and let's talk about that later. But, but sin is a, should be a hardship to the believer, and oftentimes it's too much to bear alone. You need someone to come along beside you and help you, or multiple someone sometimes to come along and help you. And so rather than thinking that you're something special because you're the one who's been asked or, or given the opportunity to help in a particular situation, um, maybe you need to get in there and just bear the burden with them. You know, oftentimes in those scenarios, what the person need, doesn't need is a supervisor. <laughs> they need a real helper. Not someone to stand up at the top of the ditch and be like, dig it that way. No, they need someone to go down the ditch and dig it with them. 
And that's why I think he says here that when you do this, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. What does he mean, the law of Christ? Is that not exactly what Jesus did for us? Leaving heaven, humbling himself, coming to earth as a form of a man, living his life as a man, experiencing every temptation that we will ever experience, having victory over them all, then dying for our sins regardless, giving us his spirit. Has he not borne it with us? He has borne our burdens. And now we are called to do that for one another. So don't, don't stand at the top of the ditch thinking you're something special. Throwing out little like tidbits of wisdom for them to dig the ditch better. You get in there and dig it with them. You go down in the muck and the grime and the pain and the hurt and you dig it with them. Bear your burdens with them because in doing so you will fulfill the law of Christ. In regards to the other temptation, though, the one where you begin to think maybe you're better than that other person because you're not struggling with this or that, well, in verse 5, he says, for each will have to bear his own load or his own burden in some of your translations. And this time, the word for burden is different. You know, the first one was some, like, big, overwhelming kind of thing. The second one's more like a backpack or like a, like a piece of luggage or like a crate, something small, something like that, okay? Uh, one person said it was the word used for Roman soldiers, the pack they would carry as they go off to war. For all of you in the military, you know, all the Army and Navy and Marine Corps and everyone else in between, you've got a pack. When you go, when you go out, you carry your own pack. And that's kind of the idea here. And as you compare that to the temptation mentioned in verse 4, I think it becomes very clear that what he's trying to say is, look, you're not going to be judged based or against anyone else. You know, you're not going to be standing before Christ someday, and he's like, well, you were better than Joe, you know. <laughs> I've got to admit, it's true, so that's good for you. We're not ranked in this way. When you stand before Jesus, you stand alone on your own merits, on your own faith, on your own life, on your own choices, on your own actions. You don't, you're not, you're not, I'm not going to answer for my wife at that moment, not in terms of her own. So I'm not going to answer for my children. I'm not going to answer for you in those kinds of ways. You're gonna, we're all going to be bearing our own burdens. So don't compare yourself to one another like that. Don't begin to rank yourself and become proud and boast about how you are versus this person. God doesn't work that way. So what I think Paul is trying to do here is to help the Galatians understand the path forward is they now are going to have to approach in a very, I mean, this is practical Christianity. This is, this is gospel living in its truest sense as they now have to turn away from this letter where he's been pouring theology at them and helping them understand things that are wrong in the church. And now they've got to go out and talk to their brothers. <laughs> These people in their own church who have made mistakes and are doing things wrong, you know, he says, look, those of you who are walking in the Spirit, you have a responsibility to restore those sinning brothers in a spirit of gentleness, but watch out for yourself. Don't fall into the temptation of pride. You're not better than them, and you're nothing special. Very practical admonition for the Galatians and for us, because this is something we have to do every day, every single day. I, I, I said in the first service, um, if you are not in a situation where you are interacting with the sins of other believers on a regular basis, you must live alone. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what kind of life you would have to have in order to not experience the very thing that, that Paul is describing here in Galatians 6, which means then that if you run into these situations, then you now have a, a map or a framework for going forward. You know, first of all, you better be walking in the Spirit. You better be walking in the Spirit. And I will say this on that point, too. That doesn't happen at the moment of crisis. Like, all of a sudden, I've got to deal with this person, and, you know, they've come to me for help. I better, I better start walking with the Spirit so I can help them out. No, 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 no. 
You walk with the Spirit now, every day, every moment of every day. You're in the Scriptures. You're praying. You're, you're seeking Jesus. Like You're pouring out the fact that you can't do it. You need to die. Christ needs to live in and through you. You, you walk in the Spirit every day because if you're not, you're not going to be able to process these moments uh, on the second point, the restore point, remember that is the goal. You're looking for restoration, not punishment. You're, in the end, we're not the masters of each other. We have a master. We're brothers and sisters together in this family that's called the body of Christ. I, I, I don't have a hammer to drop on you. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking to restore you. Now, as we think about that, understand there is such a thing as consequences for sin. Right? There, there is. Uh, last Sunday night in our uh, little family talk together, Alonzo Cordon uh, brought up the time that I decided to give a high five to a table saw. You know, so I, I cut off a quarter inch of that finger there. I got a big old scar, runs across this way. I don't have full feeling in my fingertip anymore. Okay. Dumb mistake? Absolutely. Consequences? Yeah. Here it is. My consequence. Rest of my life, I can look at that and remember. Don't give a high five to a table saw. It's not a good idea. Um, and sin is like that. Sin has consequences. And when I say no punishment, I'm not saying no because con- I, I get it. I, I see what happens in people's lives, in people's marriages, in people's families, in churches. Sin has consequences. What I'm addressing is the way in which we are, are the motivation, excuse me, for what we're pursuing as we go forward in that process. And I'll address it to two specific groups in the room. Uh, first, to parents, mom and dads, moms and dads, can I say to you, you will never punish sin out of your children's hearts. Never. You cannot shame sin out of their, you can't punish righteousness into their hearts either, by the way. Now, you can adjust behavior, and there is a place for that in parenting. I know that, and I'm not denying that there is. But I want you to remember what the goal is. When you're at that moment, and you're talking to your child, or you're looking at a situation, you're dealing with something, the goal here is not to like, let them have it, Maybe that's how your parents treated you, but I'm hoping you're going like, to have a little bit more biblical mindset. The goal is to restore, to restore them to walking in the Spirit. If they're believers, if they're not, then the goal is to share the gospel with them because they have no hope for change apart from that. Remember this, parents, okay? Remember it. The goal is restoration. It changes the way you approach it. The consequences might be the same either way. I'm not saying they won't be, but the way and the why you're doing it will be completely completely different. So that's one area. The second area is church discipline. That's not something we talk about a ton. I will say, though, that over the last few years, we've seen more instances of that popping up at Cornerstone. We've had two times in the past few years we had to come to our membership with a a public discipline situation to address an issue. And um, there's been others privately, but, you know, every time those things happen, one of the very first conversations that occurs with that individual is this, The goal is not to punish you. The goal is to restore you. Restoration comes through faith and repentance. They need to believe right things. They need to do right things and turn away from the wrong things. There's a reason that we're at that moment in life of a church, you know, but, but, but the goal is not to punish them. 
And even though there are consequences when someone does not respond in faith and repentance, and there's a time where it's appropriate for the the church to agree to push that person out, to shun them, to treat them as an unbeliever, all biblical ideas, biblical consequences, even in those moments, the goal is still restoration. We still want to see the person restored. We still want to see them respond in faith and repentance. It doesn't change. It doesn't matter if you're talking about your kids or someone within the church family. The process looks the same. It has the same goal. The goal is restoration. Uh, In regards to being gentle, I won't add a ton, but I will say a couple of things here. Back to the idea of speaking truth in love. Understand, please, that the person who is willing to say the hardest thing to you is probably your best friend. Don't forget that. They make you mad. They come to you and they tell you something you do not want to hear because you wanted A and they're saying A is wrong and you need to do B instead. You just found out who one of your best friends is right there. Note the people who tell you the hard things and always go back to them. Because a lot of times what happens is there, you know, people will go to the person who tells them whatever they want to hear in life and won't confront their sins, won't address their problems or issues, and so they think those are their real friends. <laughs> no, those are not your real friends. And I don't think I've ever approached it from this side. Let me say another piece of this here. If you're one of those people who won't say hard things to your friends for fear that they will get angry with you and leave you, um, may I, in as much gentleness as I can model before you right now, say you're not really their friend. You're selfish. If you are more concerned about you losing a friend than what's really best for that person, you're selfish. That person has become an idol to you for some reason, not a friend. And you need to repent of that and be willing to say those hard things. Not in harshness, in love. If you really love someone, you do what's best for them no matter what, even if it hurts you. So just remember that. Just be gentle. Speak truth even if it hurts. And note the people who do because they are your true friends. And then finally, watch out for pride because we're nothing. Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 1, right? He uses, God chooses, purposefully chooses the weak and the foolish and the base to confound the strong and the noble and the wise. So if you are used by God, you just found out who you are. (laughs) You're nothing. He uses you because you're nothing. That's not to mean you have no value to him. It just keeps you in your place. If God uses you, praise the Lord. The glory goes to him. You know what you just got to see? If If God uses you to change someone's life who's struggling with sin... You just got to work this, watch the Spirit work. You saw a miracle happen. You probably didn't think of it as such, but that's what it was. It was a miracle that occurred. No one's like excited about that one, right? Like it's like, yay, I wanted to see someone like raised from the dead. Yeah. I told you, for every one of those big things that maybe God does around the world, there must be millions upon millions of little ones that never even get noticed. Don't despise those little things, even in moments like this. If God uses you, praise him. That was the spirit at work, and you can give glory to him in that. Look, this is practical, isn't it? I mean, this is in marriage, with your children, friends, family, community groups. I mean, you're going to be dealing with this. And I don't want you just to see stuff and be like, well, I don't know what to say. Just be a brother. Be a sister. 
talk to them, approach them in love with the goal of restoration while you're walking in the spirit and being careful about pride. And if we all are doing that, man, the church of Jesus would be so healthy, we wouldn't even be able to believe it, right? Be so healthy. So why don't we give ourselves to prayer then and ask that God will do that in our midst right now. Jesus, we come and we just say, we need your help in this because we get it. We're all sinners. Every single one of us in this room, we struggle with sin. But there are moments and there are situations in life where we come maybe face-to-face with it in bigger, more noticeable ways. And oftentimes we don't know what to do. We feel overwhelmed and we're afraid and we feel probably even sometimes like we're not qualified to address things with people. But you have given us this responsibility. This is a practical outworking of what it means to live our lives in the Spirit. If we really are going to love one another and in doing so fulfill the whole law, it's going to look like this sometimes. And so I pray that you'll give us courage, that you'll help us to be walking in the Spirit on a daily basis so when those moments come, we're ready. I pray that we will have the right goal and motivation in mind. Take away from our hearts any sense of trying to shame and punish people into righteousness. It's, we're not the Spirit. Only you can change a heart Our goal is to try to restore. I pray that we will do that with gentleness, not with harshness, remembering that we too are sinners and keeping that always in the the front of our minds, but willing to say the hard things, to risk relationships and need it. And I pray that you'll protect us from pride. All of these things are right where we live. So Jesus, if you don't do this in us, we can't do it. That's why we come to you now. We ask your blessing and your help as we go out and commit ourselves to this again. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.